0: I'm Megan Armstrong, and this is the Six Feet Above podcast. Six Feet Above was created when I started to share my story of spending 16 years wanting to be six feet under to now living a life full and happy six feet above. The more I started to talk about it, my struggles, my past, the more I realized that people were genuinely interested and not judgmental at all, which is what I feared for so long. And in fact... Other people wanted to talk about their story as well, and for some reason trusted me to do so. So the Six Feet Above podcast is my way of helping to share other people's stories, finding out what works for them to create a life of happiness. Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that it has some explicit language and some very serious subject matter. It may be triggering or sensitive to certain people. Please listen with discretion. This is Sheldon's story. sheldon and i met four years ago briefly worked for the same cycling studio like maybe for a week or two um but now i realize that that whole experience happened to bring sheldon into my life so thank you for coming on thank you i really appreciate it um tell me just give me a quick intro uh, for all of our listeners
1: wow quick intro that's a hard Who one. Who are you? Who am I? Oof, we could write a book I on know, that. I
0: know. Well, that's the goal. <laughs>
1: oh, perfect. Love <laughs> it. So I um, I've lived in Atlanta since I got to know you pretty much. Um, been here about four years now. I'm originally from Arkansas. I grew up a uh, competitive gymnast and then went to college as an athlete. So um, since we met in the fitness world, that makes sense. I've always been Very much involved in that. I then moved to New York to pursue some um, dreams performing. I did the whole Broadway thing. Um, I did a tour, had a major injury, kind of like changed my life, went to corporate America, and then decided that where I needed to be was in the fitness world. So here I am back at that. During all that, we've had like the fun things the like coming outs, Mm -hmm. the drug addiction, which we'll get into, alcoholism, Uh got married. All all the things. Got the dogs. Got the the dogs, the babies. So
0: you're at SoulCycle now. Yes. Tell me how, because you were at a couple studios before that, but tell me how SoulCycle came about and why it's the perfect fit for you.
1: So I was introduced to SoulCycle when I was actually living in New York City and I had just gotten out of like rehab from a surgery. Okay. So I had a titanium rod put from my knee to my ankle and... One of the first things I said I could do was indoor cycle. Okay. At that time, my drug addiction was like in full force and my depression was really starting to kick in. Mm-hmm. So the ability to do something physically active was very refreshing. Yeah. And so I took like the gym spin class and was having actually a pretty good time with yeah. that. And a good friend who we had actually previously met, one of the founders of Soul Cycle. I'd met her through her. Didn't really know much about it at that point. She was like, You need to come. You need to come here.
0: So, you had never taken a class. I had
1: never taken Soul Cycle at the time. And she was like, Just like West Village, West 77th Street, show up this time on like a Thursday afternoon. I went and I took my first class and I was hooked. Really? Actually, lies. I hated it at first because I wasn't good at it. Uh Because I went into it with this mindset of I need to be the best, Mm -hmm. I need to be perfect everyone else is doing these things. And if I'm not doing those things, like obviously something's wrong with me. Or you don't fit in. And I had had all of these like stories. Fitness at that time was a competitive thing for me. Right. And I was right off an injury. So my cardio was horrible. Um, Those one twos get real quick. Oh my goodness. We were (laughs) running out of the saddle and I was like crying in the saddle. Oh my gosh. Uh, But I went back again because I left feeling great. And what I eventually found was it wasn't necessarily about the fitness. It was more about the community. It was more about like self empowerment and like meeting yourself where you're at and having some fun. And then also like not being afraid to push yourself to go somewhere further. Right. And that's when I fell in love with Soul Cycle.
0: So you've been teaching Soul Cycle in Atlanta for a year. A year now. Just celebrating that. And you just opened your second studio. You're about to. Yeah. Right? We
1: open on Friday in Ponce, Ponce City Market. Amazing. So excited. Congrats.
0: So I think it's, um, it's interesting. We talk about, you know, uh, teaching fitness and that's kind of where I connected with you when we first met, Um, you're the type of person that walks in a room and it's like, we want to be around you. I want to be around your energy. And one thing that we've talked about is kind of this dichotomy of a fitness instructor having this energy and this, you know, we've got it all. We're putting on this show for people and, and everything has to be perfect when we're up there either, you know, teaching spin or teaching something different. But people look up to us because they it looks like we've got it all together. Right. And behind this whole idea and face of fitness is our real life. Mm mm-hmm. And what we've been through and what we had to go through to get to where we are now, which when I first, you know, shared my struggles and my past, you reached out to me right away and said, thank you for doing this. Why did you thank me?
1: Because more people need to own the fact that life is not always sunshine and rainbows Mm -hmm. because it's refreshing to see someone that you you could look at and you could think they've got it they've got the job they've got the house they've got the look they've got the like followers on instagram like whatever you want to say like make someone like successful Mm -hmm. or thriving so often we just like slap that label on and we're like okay like they've got it together like perfect megan's like Megan's amazing and yes Megan's amazing but we also need to hear like Megan's amazing because she went through all of this exactly and that's actually what made you who you are that's what made me the person I am today and it's okay that you don't always have everything together Mm -hmm. it's okay that like there are times that like you don't feel like you're you're your best you feel beaten down like you're having like a hard time with things that's okay and people need to know that
0: absolutely So thank you, because when you reached out to me, it was like, oh, my God, Sheldon believes in me, believes in this, believes in what I want to do. Like, it's just that validation. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you, you know, coming on and sharing your story. And I kind of want to start from the beginning with you and your family and how you grew up and where you grew up and your relationship with your parents.
1: Yeah, let's do it. So (laughs) I grew up in Bentonville, Arkansas, which um, is kind of in... I think technically it's in the like heart of the Bible belt and grew up Southern Baptist, um, religious family, um, very like loving family, great parents. But the religion that we were in at the, um, or the religion I grew up in was not the most inclusive. Mm-hmm. And I, from a very young age knew I was different. I, from a very young age knew I, I didn't want to grow up and like marry a woman mm-hmm. and like, do these things. I also, from a young age, had like some differing beliefs.
0: From your parents from, or from? From my
1: parents and from like the religion that we were okay. in. Okay. Um, that made me kind of feel like an outsider. Got it. And what I did know is that what I had seen from lots of religious aspects was condemnation, you know, exclusion, if people were like coming out. Um, I then went into a private Christian school where kind of like the same thing happened. Like people got expelled if they came out. Um, So most of my growing up was very much about like putting on a facade. And from a young age, I learned like stifle your emotions and let people see what you think they want to see. So I kind of adapted to be a chameleon. Like, I could put on the face that would, like, make everyone, like, the teachers at the Christian school love me, the, like, pastor at the church, like, think I'm, like, doing things great. Right. Um, And that made me feel like I was okay. And meanwhile, inside, I was terrified because I was afraid if anyone ever actually knew who I was, then no one would love me.
0: Right. Do you think your parents knew, looking back?
1: You know, that's a really hard question to answer yeah I know
0: did they know that you were struggling with something maybe
1: I think so yeah I think they knew I like had some like struggles and I think lots of it probably from their aspect was hard to see because I would get a little bit of a like bullying or the teasing of like oh he's gay he's a musical theater right. he's a dancer he's right in gymnastics like he's he's feminine and I think they probably assumed it was like really hard just like seeing me being bullied got it and that was probably my struggle. Um, I definitely was not open with them about anything. So it's a hard question to answer if I actually know they knew. Yeah. I think they probably knew I was dealing with something. Okay. Yeah.
0: So when did you went through all this as a young adult teenager? Yep. Like when did it really kind I of... I came
1: out at 17. Okay. And I came out in a nasty way. In high school? In high school.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: I came out angry and was like, this is me, like, screw you world. Looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. I would have, of course, loved to have done it a million different ways. Yeah, But what had happened at the time is I had started to develop some good friendships. I had started to feel like I might have a community that, like, if they knew who I was, We'd it still would love be okay. You. Yeah. And I had also started like secretly dating someone. Oh, and so it was very much in like the shadows of Fayetteville, Arkansas. So I was doing a lot of sneaking around. I was doing a lot of disrespecting my parents through that. Like I was living under their roof. I was telling them I was one place and I was another.
0: Which I feel like most teenagers I was do, say, to as a certain... no other teenager yeah. Yeah. ever
1: has done. Yeah.
0: But yours is a different. Like mostly, it's like sneaking into a party, whereas yours, you're sneaking off with another guy. Yeah,
1: and. I kind of got caught. Um, I had like left my phone. I was like in a couple like towns away and didn't answer my phone. My mom, of course, was super worried because I was actually I was 17 at the time. And she was like, where, like, where are you? So I finally answered my phone and, I, and she was like, where are you? Like, what's going on? Are you OK? And I just kind of like snapped. I was like, we need to talk when I get home. And she was like, are you OK? I was like, I'm fine. But like, we need to talk. So I made her and my dad wait till my dad came home. My dad like left a work function early, came home and I was like, I was with a guy. I'm gay. That's how you told them? Yep. It was (laughs) shit. Yeah. So rude. So aggressive. And I did it. So I was so defensive.
0: Yeah, but it's not like looking back, you say that, but in that moment, that's how you were feeling. Yeah. And we talked about this anger Mm -hmm. and because I dealt with a lot of that too, like you're angry because your life is the way it is and and you would love it to be different. Yeah. But now looking back that we've gone through all this, we can accept it now. So talk a little bit about that, that anger towards your your parents and and just the world.
1: Yeah. I had bottled that anger up Uh probably since wow. As as long as I was like a pretty conscious kid. Um, I actually was having a conversation with my therapist yesterday because we're still like kind of digging through all this stuff because some things have like came back up in my life. And I'm like, you know, like, I think I still have some like self like doubt issues from like whenever I was a kid. And um, one of my like first memories as a kid was like me like laying in my bed um, and like, yelling to the heavens like change me or kill me Mm. um because i don't want to keep living with a secret the rest of my life and this was like me as a kid having like lion king wallpaper and like it had just came out so i mean it's probably that was like late 90s yeah so i was like under 10 that's when like the anger really started to like i I started to be mad that like i had to live with this like secret i had to live with this weight and so fast forward almost probably ten years of me building all that up. Mm-hmm. The easiest way for it to be directed was
0: towards the people that towards, brought you into the world. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so it was me. Just I I felt like they were the reason I couldn't be myself. They were the reason I probably like, you know, felt like it was so hard to be open and honest. And they're like, why didn't you tell us this? And so of course I blamed it on them. Yep. So all of that just kind of erupted, and. It was, like, the late spring. So that entire summer was just, like, a lot of, like, anger yeah. of me trying to, like, prove to them that, like, they weren't going to be able to change me of them. Because they tried to change you, right? Yeah. We did um, some conversion therapy. Oh, God. Uh, we did, like, the group um, of, like, our family. And then we did, like, me on my own. Mm-hmm. It didn't work.
0: <laughs> Clearly.
1: Clearly. At the time, it made me more angry because uh-huh. um, I felt like I was being, like, What I was so afraid was going to happen was being validated. The one thing that I think turned out differently is I had created the story in my mind that I would be disowned. I'd get kicked out. Like I was not kicked out. I was definitely like punished for the fact that, you know, I had been like kind of like being a sketchy kid, lying, running around, doing all these things. And they didn't know like at the time, like what to do. So yeah, they, they were trying to like figure out how to deal with this. And I was just fighting every turn every step wasn't telling him what I needed was just telling him like this is me because I finally like felt like my secret was out mm-hmm. so since my secret was out and the thing I'd been so scared of like I didn't give a fuck like, right there was nothing to be held back right so I came out swinging
0: but that that coming out and finally saying who you were didn't fix everything like there was oh, no. all this you know, these other emotions that you were never able to deal with as a kid inside. Yeah. So is that kind of when the alcohol and drugs came into play?
1: Alcohol had already been like dabbling. Okay, with. sure. You're
0: 17. That yeah. makes
1: sense. Growing up, I probably had more like eating disorder stuff. Okay. Um, food was definitely something I tried to like control. Alcohol at the time was still something that I was just like, ooh, like I'm going to like do it. I'm going to be bougie about it. I'm going to have a martini. Done. That's 17. I'm done. I'm gonna have like one margarita okay I'm done like somehow I like was able to control you know for like a year yeah <laughs> and then I had my senior year started actually like going to a therapist that like kind of helped me like manage some of my anger um, got me and my parents back to where we were at least like speaking
0: was that your idea or your parents idea to go to a therapist
1: their idea to go to a therapist I said I want to be comfortable with the person we're picking cuz whenever we went to conversion therapy I had no say. Got it. It was you're going to see this person and then it was a person that was like wanting to change me. Yeah. We finally found a therapist that I felt like was not trying to change me but was trying to help mend the relationship. Okay. And I was okay with that. I was like we can work the relationship what I will not stand for is like someone trying to change who I I am as like a human being. Right. Um so that's what kind of happened my senior year, and then when I moved out my freshman year of college, that's when shit hit the fan with drinking. You
0: went to Hawaii? I went to
1: Hawaii. Okay. I wanted to get away. I still had like a lot of resentment against the town I grew up in yeah. and lots of the people um, that lived there because I felt like they were the, the ones that like made this so hard for me, that made me keep a secret, that made me do all these things. And going to a school that at the time was definitely like one of the top ones for cheerleading. Right. I was surrounded by a whole bunch of other gay people, which was the first time in my life really like being able to live in that environment and yeah. be open. Yeah. Because um, I'd done musical theater growing up. I had like been around the gay people, but it was very much like, oh my God, one day I'm going to be like them maybe. Right. And so when I got to college and I was on the other side of the Pacific Ocean and I was surrounded by gay people and I could do whatever the hell I wanted. Yeah. I started drinking and then I figured out that like drinking made me feel like my problems weren't that bad. Drinking made me feel like I fit in with anyone no matter who they were. Mm -hmm. So why would I not want to do it all the time? Um, So that's when I definitely started like raging and not in like the fun Saturday night way. The like
0: dangerous alcoholic dangerous way. Okay. Okay. So it's more than just a college kid going to college with the freedom. Oh, yeah. It was like all of the those eighteen years of bottled bottled up mm-hmm. emotions and and stuff. Yep, were dealt with by alcohol because it just kind of numbed it. Yeah, because
1: If I would start drinking, like maybe something would come up. Maybe something would like flare and insecurity. Um, so guess what? Like I can just black out. Like we. Can, and I, not I, have to worry I would go, about it. I'd go zero to sixty. Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. So tell me a little bit about. When the drugs came into play, so you, you went to you went to college, but you didn't graduate. No, Is that right? Okay,
1: I was there for two years, and then I got the opportunity to go to New York for um, a workshop of a show that was going to be was planning on hopefully coming to Broadway. Okay, um bring it on the musical. Nice, based on that <laughs> two thousand cult classic movie, Bring It. On I love it. So that was an opportunity that I felt like I couldn't pass up. Yeah.
0: But the alcohol never got in the way of the dance and gymnastics and all, you know, because it's such a physical sport.
1: Yeah. It definitely played a part of it. Okay. Part of me had made it such a part of my life, though, that being, like, drunk or high, I could still, like, tumble. Function, yeah. I could still, muscle memory still kicked in. And there was, like, one time my, like, freshman year of, college that we were doing like a cheerleading showcase and i had like gotten like drunk until like 6 a.m and we like performed at like 8 and i like remember starting the routine i don't remember the routine and then all of a sudden i remember landing my final like pike toe full and like hitting my pose and being like the world is spinning where am i oh my god um so i hate saying i got like good at, at it yeah but it's routine but it became the The normal right um and then whenever i started doing uppers that whenever like cocaine and like Mm -hmm. crystal meth came in like i felt like i could jump higher i felt like i could kick further and i could just leap all day so that kind of to my mind became the like the baseline of like well why would i not do something to make me better at this right which is a complete lie but with that like drug in my system I thought I was better at it
0: yeah the time being you did anyways Mm Again, looking back totally different
1: totally different looking back
0: so you you left school went to New York moved
1: to New York um that's when I definitely started partying a lot more okay I had the like schedule of um when we were in rehearsals it was like 10 a.m to 5 p.m off on the weekends that environment is very conducive to drinking cocaine was like around and it was like considered pretty normal so the like taking it a little bit further didn't seem like a leap yeah I felt like the like baseline was already like coke I think the first time I did crystal I like thought it was um and then I was like oh my god but I'm up for like three days and then I just kept going from there
0: with with crystal meth Mm -hmm. okay yeah were you and you were still drinking too
1: oh yeah and so we I'll give you a little bit of a timeline I left college in May um I spent the summer at home and I did some, like, traveling and some, like, cheerleading work, random stuff. And then we started, I think, in September with the workshop of Bring It On. So we did, like, September to November and I think we came to Atlanta, actually, oh. in December for our out-of-town trial. So in that, like, month, I stayed in New York and I decided, you know, what what will I do? I'll, like, I'll do some go-go dancing. Perfect. I'm already a dancer. Really? I've been out at the gay clubs every night. I like, know I everyone here. Yeah. I'll take my clothes off, I'll jump on a thing and it felt like it filled so many of the voids because I got like people telling me how beautiful I was. Mm-hmm. So there was my like positive affirmations yeah. that like I'm pretty so like I'm worth something. I made a pretty good amount of money and I could get as drunk and as like high as I wanted and no one really cared. It didn't matter. It was kind of the normal in that industry. Right. And that's where um, cocaine started to like dabble into crystal. And it just felt normal. Yeah. I had like surrounded myself with a whole bunch of people that were doing it. So I thought I might as well too.
0: So at what point, Um, because we've talked about you know, a couple different suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. And there was one in particular that you shared with me.
1: Yeah. Can you talk about that? Definitely. So, this was a couple years later. We had opened Bring It On on Broadway. I had actually finished out the run. During the run, I broke my tibia. Mm-hmm. Um, I got some fractures there. So, I had surgery. And after that surgery, I was out for a year. Um, that year is when the depression really kicked in and there were multiple suicide attempts. After I hadn't worked in a little over a year, I was in my apartment the meth and heroin had been reduced by that point, had been kind of the driving factors of my life. And at the time I was actually using IV. And so I was in my bathroom. I had set up my like ritual of like what I was going to do. And I decided that like that night I was going to overdose.
0: And I, I'm only asking you this because I know for me what night like I decided like or what day, you know, it's just Yeah. Um, was there something specific that happened that day or something that was like the tipping point or the catalyst where like, I just can't, I can't deal with this anymore.
1: That day. I don't think I can't remember anything in particular. The like month leading up to that had been a lot of feeling like I have nothing left. Mm -hmm. Like I had gotten back into trying to audition and things weren't going well. Yeah, Because I now look back and I can see why they weren't going right, well. Right. <laughs> but I had done that. I had a relationship that had failed. I was definitely starting to run out of money. Like we were scrounging in the bottom yeah. of the barrel. And all the things that I had used to like put my self-worth and to like decide that like this made me valuable to the world were gone. Mm-hmm. And I was left with what felt like that little kid in his bedroom whenever he was, you know, just a couple years old, right. being like, like I don't want to live like this. Yeah. And I felt like I had tried a whole bunch of other things and nothing was working. I knew at that point I had a problem with drugs. Um, I had tried quitting on my own and it wasn't working. And so I thought it was a losing battle. And I wasn't really providing anything else to the world. I knew I was starting to hurt the people around me. So I felt like it was just better off. End it now. What I didn't understand, and what I still think lots of people don't feel like they can do when they're in that point, is just say it. Yeah. Like I had lived so much wanting to have that facade, and I knew I couldn't keep the facade up anymore, but I didn't think it was an option to tell people exactly that I didn't think life was worth living anymore. I didn't think it was an option to be that vulnerable Mm -hmm. because whatever reason i had decided whether it like just didn't even cross my mind or whether i felt like that would be like me being a failure right
0: like it's it's almost better just not exist than mm-hmm. admit that you don't want to be here yeah it's like let me just take myself off of this planet rather than actually voice what i'm really feeling yeah and i think that's where we need to talk about it more because yes it's embarrassing it's completely shameful but it is what it is. That's, that's who you were at that moment. And, and that's okay. And like, thank God that, you know, it didn't work and that you are still here to tell your story Mm -hmm. and to help someone else that is going through the same thing or has been through the same thing. It's just very difficult for people that have never been through it to understand. Exactly. So I'm so glad it did not happen for you. Can you tell us about you know, you lined everything up, up. you were prepared, you knew what you were going to do.
1: I was ready to go. Um, I had put more than enough, um, into the syringe to OD and I had a second syringe lane by just in case. Um, my thought was like, just go for it, hit it twice and like, it'll all be over. And in the, pretty much the entirety of my using career, I, I'm, was not healthy, but I was very physically active. So like finding a vein was never, never an issue. I spent probably, I mean, it felt like it was like seconds. Um, but I look back at like the amount of times, like I probably was in there for like an hour, um, trying to find a vein. I, my arms were bleeding like crazy and I could not, I could not hit a vein to save my life. And this was the first time I'd ever experienced that
0: first time you were unsuccessful. I was
1: unsuccessful, which I think it's funny that I just use that phrase and not to say funny. It's probably the wrong word, but it's ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Not being able to hit a vein is actually what saved my life. So after trying all that, I finally just had this moment where I was like, I've asked to like be changed. That didn't work in the past. I have tried taking myself off this planet. It hasn't worked. It's not working now. I have to be here for a reason. Mm-hmm. Like there has to be something that is gonna come from all of this that's gonna make it worthwhile. And so at that point it was my like moment of like just throwing my hands in the air and being like, you know what, like, screw it. Yeah. Um, so I left everything in my bathroom the way it was. I left my apartment at this point. We we're like getting close to the morning. I went to Soul Cycle. <laughs> I then went to my therapist. Wow. <laughs> and after I got out of my therapist. It was Valentine's Day. Uh-huh. So I was on my way to my therapist. I saw all the balloons of people for like having their Valentine's right. Day, the love, the you need to be with someone if you're not someone. Right. You know, what's the point of your life? Created that story. Saw my therapist, knew that like if I went back home, I, I would go right back to the place I was and I would use what was sitting there. Yep. The ammunition was ready to go. So I text my best friend. I said, I'm going to wait at this like local bar. I really need you. Can you come meet me there? And I think she like ditched plans she had with her boyfriend, Mm -hmm. soon to be fiance, now husband. (laughs) And she came and she met me. I kind of gave her a little information of what was going on. And I was like, I'm going to ask something from you. And I was like, can you go into my apartment and get rid of it all? And so she went up to my apartment, she flushed the heroin down the toilet, and she got rid of the syringes. Did she know that you were using? She knew I was using. She didn't know. How bad it was? That was when the first time she kind of saw it. I had a couple months before told her, I have a problem. I'm trying to stop and I can't. And she was kind of my like one source of like support. And so she cleaned it out and I you know, tried to keep going with life, I still had the depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the depression for a while. Yeah. But that was like the day, like I knew that from that point on, I knew that there was something that if I could get through this, yep. there was something that was going to come from it mm-hmm. that I needed all of that struggle, all of that depression, all of the like self-hatred. I needed to understand that to be able to.
0: Do you think it was kind of a day, like for me, I remember thinking back and and looking in the mirror and just being really honest with myself. And I'm like, I hate myself. I hate my life. And it was that moment that I like stopped placing blame on everyone. And I just took responsibility. I was like, well, I am who I am. Like, this is it. I, I can't blame my parents or a situation I was in in my teens or a bad breakup when I was, you know, 22. Mm -hmm. Yes. All of that happened. You know, they say it doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. And like, it's, it's hard to understand it when you're in that moment, but now looking back, do you think that was maybe the point in your life when you're actually like, this is who I am. This is a part of me. Now it's up to me to change and help it rearrange my future Or, or, or like, um, Basically, like, take responsibility for what you've been through and the anger and, you know, all of your past stuff Mm -hmm. and realize, like, it's up to you to fix it.
1: I think I started heading in that direction. Yeah. For me, it took a while to finally, like, take responsibility. That was a hard thing for me. Yeah. I had played the victim for so long of... Oh, well, if you were in my shoes, like you would, you would do drugs too. Right. I think at that point though, I saw that I had this life that on paper looked amazing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, was in my early twenties. I had been on Broadway. I had been on like national like TV. I had done all these things that like everyone would tell me like these were like lifetime achievements that people would want to like check off throughout the course of a career that I had done. You know, in a couple years. Yeah. And I still wasn't happy. So I knew that the change had to come from within. I don't think I knew what that change was gonna be yet. Yeah. I just I knew that I was gonna have to change. And probably took another year and a half for me to finally be like, wow, I'm playing like the victim. Like I'm like I'm blaming it on everyone else. And everyone else, yeah. That it took me a long time to realize how much blame I put on the rest of the world
0: this is going to sound harsh but depression is very um selfish yeah when you're depressed all you think about is yourself yeah and it's you know my life is the worst and this is the worst for me and it's like it becomes that cyclical sort of thing where that's what you think about how bad something is and it becomes worse and worse and worse and you Mm -hmm. just start to go down this spiral and that's when you know people are like oh when you're when you are depressed that you really have to think about stuff that you're grateful for and i'm like oh god that's so much you know easier said than done
1: yeah
0: um because it starts to consume your thoughts and and your habits of what you're doing on a day to day basis Mm -hmm. so for me it was like i had to break out of those horrible thoughts and horrible habits yeah so it's like you've created this whole life you know up until you're what 20 24 at this time or 22 somewhere around there you know all of these emotions and these thoughts that you've had like that's habitual Mm -hmm. so it's now like okay now i got to figure out how to get out of that and how to change some of that so when you finally you know you said it took like a year and a half before um you stopped playing the victim yeah do you can you give any examples of how you did that like how did you rework your own brain to help you get out of that mentality?
1: I do a lot of what I call like brain training. And uh-huh. I know some people call it that as well. It's reworking the way you allow your brain to think through things. Mm-hmm. And with me, it's also the verbiage I allow my brain to use. So um, after this incident we had just talked about, yeah. um, I later that summer went to rehab and that was the first like big shift and I had to like completely reset. It was like 30 days. We're making a change here.
0: And you chose to go to rehab. I chose. Right? Yes. So again, it's like You know, you you do an intervention for a family member. Oh, people have tried to
1: send me before. Don't worry. Yeah.
0: So it's not until you actually looked in the mirror and said, I want to change my life. Now I'm going to go to rehab for me and not for my parents or for whoever else Mm -hmm. that it really started to make a difference. Yeah. Okay.
1: So that was like the beginning of it. But what I didn't realize is how much of my thinking was just like self-defeating thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that was just my thinking from like when I'm like driving in the car to when I'm getting ready in the morning. To, you know, when I'm in yoga and I'm supposed to be like having my like time to refill myself and I'm sitting here being like, oh, you should point your toes more in this position. You should like twist your arm more. You're not flexible enough. Mm -hmm. That took probably like another year to start to shift. And then after a lot of work with that, I now am able to see when I'm being like, I can't do that. I'm like, no, like actually I I could. Mm -hmm. I'm choosing not to do that. By saying I can't do that, I'm defeating myself. Right. I'm playing the victim of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not able, and I'm blaming it on my addiction, or right. I'm blaming it on my depression, or my like incomes right now, like whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still playing the va- blame game, but yeah. now I can at least like notice, acknowledge it. it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So there's a big shift that happens. I think you know it's like going through it and then coming out the other side and looking back and being like, now I can recognize those thoughts faster. Yeah. So when you're talking about the small stuff, like being in yoga, pointing your toes, like, okay, when those emotions kind of overcome you you're aware of them you let them happen Mm -hmm. and then you kind of move on yeah you don't let it get you into that downhill you can't
1: keep spinning
0: so then when bigger things happen now you've kind of trained your brain Mm -hmm. or trained your thought process to do the same thing with bigger emotions bigger life events and that's something that i've had to learn how to do too it's like you know, from from a family member's death to you know losing a job, like big events like that. Like I practice the small habits that I learned years ago exactly with the same exact intention. Yep. Um, which it's interesting because it happens more automatically now, whereas before I really, really had to think about it. Yeah. And really had to focus and and push myself to do that. So you spent the next. How long in rehab? Like a month. I spent month, a month you said? in rehab. Days. Okay, mm-hmm.
1: and then I moved back to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd actually been living back there for like a month or so, and um, like you
0: just got got out of New York because you knew it wasn't. I, kn-
1: I knew I had found out that I'd figured out that I was going through this for some reason, and like I eventually started noticing like I'm gonna have to change because this world that like everyone's seen right. that I'm living in right looks perfect. It sure doesn't feel perfect. Yep. So something's gonna have to be different. So I looked at moving. I had no money at the time, so let's be honest, I couldn't move anywhere. I was like, I'm gonna go to Austin. I'm gonna go. No, I went back to Bentonville, Arkansas. I started like trying to like make changes. I kind of pulled myself out of the like performing environment just because I had created it as a very toxic space. And I did a little bit of like fitness stuff. I then was like, you know what? Like, let's go the complete opposite direction. I started working for Walmart corporate. Oh, and got like. A big kid job. Really? Yep. I would say 9 to 5, but it was like 7 a.m. to like 6 p.m. Working the like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. job. And that's when I like was able to like kind of like break the habits Uh and start to form new ones. Okay.
0: Interesting. So how did you end up back in fitness then?
1: While I was working at Walmart, every chance we'd get, of course, I'd go like ride Soul Cycle. I had started feeling this like calling to teaching. Mm -hmm. And specifically to teaching at Soul. So of course, like fresh out of rehab, I'm like, I'm going to follow my calling. I'm going to do it. Like it'll work. Yeah. I auditioned. Uh, I got offered the training. And then I like sat down and like looked at like how to make it work. And I had to go back to him and be like, I can't do this right now. I'm nine months sober. Mm-hmm. If I move back to manhattan yeah there's a good chance i'm not going to stay sober i actually don't feel like prepared for this and and at the time i had told them i was able to relocate um and then once i started like thinking about it i'm like actually like i can't do these cities i can't do these cities like Mm -hmm. all i need more like personal stability before i'm going to be able for this so i didn't go through training and i still knew it was like something that was going to happen down the road yeah I stayed in Arkansas and like a month later, they opened like a little like boutique fitness studio in Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh And I met with the owner and became one of the trainers for whenever they opened there. And so I started finding like my passion for actually like instructing people. Yeah. And I also found an outlet for using all of these like small tools like we just talked about. For creating habits within fitness mm-hmm. and using fitness to create habits within your mind. Right. So that way you are conditioned that when these big life things happen, you you have tools. Yeah. You can acknowledge what's going on in your head. Because for me, like whenever I was in my depression, I couldn't tell you a specific instance that caused me to want to kill myself one day. Yeah. Same. It was just some small, tiny little thing that like
0: that snapped you me. Mm-hmm.
1: So same thing with like my emotions, like regular days, if I'm not like paying attention to the small stuff, I'm definitely not going to be able to handle the big stuff. yeah So training yourself with these like small things and like small challenges like we face in a fitness class, right. which is like when your mind starts to tell you, you can't do this, you're not good enough, you know, you don't look you don't look the parts like, why would you do it? Um, all of those like self-defeating thoughts, like if we can start training those out and acknowledging them and choosing something different, we're gonna be able to do that in the bigger stuff. So I started teaching there.
0: So that was while you were still That at was
1: while I was still at Walmart. How did
0: you get to Atlanta?
1: Okay, I was gonna yeah. say, are we ready for that yeah, story? Yeah, I'm ready for the Atlanta story. We're ready story. for it. Let's, so, let's,
0: let's come into the present. Let's come into the present. <laughs> pre- oh my
1: God, there's so much in the past. I told you it's a book. I know. While I was in Arkansas, I met my now husband. We started dating, we got engaged while we were in Arkansas, and moving to Atlanta became an option for his career to move forward.
0: Can I ask you what your parents thought of that? Yeah. Because you're living in Arkansas. Living right in Arkansas. where they live. Yeah.
1: My parents are amazing. Um, they, at this point, are like, very supportive. Um, it was a little exactly. bit of a shock. Whenever I yeah. first was like, hey, by the way, I'm getting married. Um, but they love Mike. Okay. Um, And like fast forward, we'll like glimpse into the present. Like we're now to the point where like they invited us on their like 40th wedding anniversary like trip because they wanted us to come to Dominican Republic with uh-huh. them. And like we vacation together every year. Like we like vacation really well with my parents. <laughs> like really well. Like we love it. <laughs> so whole like so much has changed with them with me right with the way we like relate with each other um it really is from just like a place of like love and caring and understanding
0: were they nervous for you to move back to a big city after knowing what happened in new york or i think at
1: first yeah, yeah.
0: but they figured you're happier now you're with mike you have an you have an opportunity in atlanta yep little bit more supportive,
1: but in still... the words of my mother, yeah. I knew you were never gonna stay here very long. <laughs> <laughs> I love Bittenville, Arkansas, but just it, yeah. it wasn't the place I wanted to be settled in. So um we decided to move here. I decided to stay with Walmart. Uh-huh. Um I loved working um with a company in Bittenville and there were not any positions here. So I transferred to a super center okay. as an assistant store manager. Um, so I went from corporate to um, retail level and we moved here. Um, I quickly left Walmart, um, just was not the best fit. And that's when actually I met you. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? Like, let's look at following like my passion. Like I've been waiting long enough. Yeah. Like, let's do it. And that's when we met. I started teaching. We taught together for maybe a week. Yeah. And I went to a different studio. Yeah. I was there for, I think, a year um, and then I left that and I said, you know what, like I've been doing things just to be doing I've I've been teaching at places just so that I can teach. Right. Let's create some space and see what the universe fills it with. And I went into soul cycle training literally the day my non-compete ended with the last fitness studio. No I was kidding.
0: At. So it's like you actually, you know, years ago you had the opportunity, but you would have been doing it for the wrong reason to fill this this void. And then you Mm spent all these years filling that void by, I hate to say like fixing yourself. Cause I hate when people say, Oh, you need to be fixed. It's like, no, this is just who I am. This is my story, my life. But you learned how to handle all those emotions and all those things. And then the opportunity came up again and it was like, bam, you knew it right moment, right time. You auditioned, Yep. you got it. Mm -hmm. And now you're literally inspiring, you know, hundreds of people thousands of people in atlanta but i think the most important thing to talk about is that we still still deal with all of this every oh, yeah. day so along the way there's probably been some relapses mm-hmm. or sometimes where you felt like you were moving backwards yeah can you talk briefly about that
1: definitely i like the verbiage i'm gonna throw this out there real quick um we're not fixing ourselves. I feel like we're understanding ourselves. Perfect. Because once I understand, like, then I know what I'm working with. I like that. So when we first moved to Atlanta, we'd been here maybe a month um, and I relapsed.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, okay.
1: I had decided that I was like, okay, drinking. Like the drugs were just my issue. A story most addicts and alcoholics have said a million times. So I was like, I'm going to reward myself. Mike went out of town. Um, I decided to go to the pool and have a couple drinks Mm -hmm. and next thing i knew i was blacked out and i was doing drugs so that happened and that's when like it was really like coming back for that was a lot of like the same feelings i had had back whenever i was actively using it was a lot of depression Mm -hmm. it took me months to get myself through to get through the depression um is when i really started working a like recovery program Uh uh-huh and It also for me and my husband, it was a moment that like I really saw how much he cared for me because he kind of had to like be on the back burner while I just sat in this like rough place and tried to find my way out of it. I luckily had some tools and I knew that like a recovery program, I knew that actually like dealing with my issues mm-hmm. and like facing all the things i had buried away over the last you know 26 years right actually starting to like bring them back up in therapy yeah. and work through them on like healthy terms was my way to kind of pull myself out of that
0: and knowing that you weren't a failure because it happened again that it was just a blip
1: i definitely felt like i was a failure you d- for at a the while. time right mm-hmm. yeah and then It was through like things like this and hearing other people's stories and talking to other people in recovery and knowing that like the majority of people like screw up, like people fall and then it's not what happens when you fall. It's I know we say it a million times, but it's how you get back up. Right. That started making me be like, okay, you know what? This is just another learning in my story. Yeah. And there's something I'm not learning because I've, this happened again and it actually happened again about a year and a half ago. Really? Um, and I it was another learning that I had like started getting back to just saying, everything's okay. Everything's okay. I got it. I'll do this, I'll do that. Overworking myself, not taking like mental care of myself. I wasn't going to therapy. I wasn't meditating. I wasn't reading. I wasn't really working like a recovery program. And through me letting all that fall on the wayside the patterns that my brain had done for the majority of my life before I knew it took lead yep and next thing I knew it literally was one day that I went to go to the grocery store and I drove right past the grocery store got drugs and an hour later was like what the hell just happened yeah and couldn't believe that like my my thought process that took me there was like you know what like don't go get groceries go get drugs you'll be more productive Mm -hmm. you'll get things done it'll be fine like you got this. This is this is the way. This is how it's worked for you before. It never worked for me before. Right. Um, but my my brain let me tell told me it worked for me before.
0: So that was a year and a half ago and did Mike know at the time?
1: He was in Australia. Um, he got back and he got back on his um birthday and he found out the next morning.
0: Was he disappointed, sad, upset, angry, understanding?
1: I had told myself that I wasn't going to say anything to him, that it was just this one time Mm -hmm. and I just needed to shut up and like pretend that everything's okay because I'll I'll never do it again. Right. And um, so he was more hurt that I didn't tell him. And then with the actual relapse, he was... Uh, Well, the relapse, of course, did hurt. Um, Right, it hurts to like see someone you care that much about also hurting. With the relapse, he was very supportive and like, well, like let's keep going. And he kind of has a similar look at it on me of like, well, what are we not learning? Like, if this is happening again, like what what hasn't worked in the past?
0: What would you say for someone that? is going through something similar that doesn't have that support system,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know? Like how, if you didn't have Mike, like what would you have done on your own to kind of help you through that?
1: I think the biggest thing is whether it's someone that you're in a relationship with, or it's, you know, a recovery group, or it's a support group, or it's a hotline. I think the biggest thing is like having someone that you, you can tell everything to, mm-hmm. And know that there's not going to be judgment, yeah, um someone that you can be like hey i I'm struggling with this, um because I think there's a lot of power in us just getting out of our heads and speaking what we're struggling with, right um even if that person's you know someone you don't know on a hotline, that person can be the one that kind of like helps get it in the light, yeah. And when you see it in the light, you might even see it a completely different way.
0: Well, and sometimes it just helps to like vocalize it because you have all of these like insane thoughts going through your head. It feels like, you know, a million miles a minute. But when you just start to talk about it, um, it slows it down. Yeah. For me anyways.
1: For me, it becomes more like doable. Yeah. Yeah. I start to see it as like, okay, well, like I can handle this part right now. That like one thing that I just said, like I can do that now. I'll worry about everything else tomorrow.
0: Right, right. But again, it's about you wanting to do that mm-hmm. for yourself. And that's that's the biggest thing that I took away from our conversation previously is is you know, you grew up in this area of the country that was not accepting of who you were. And once you kind of accepted who you were you're like, here I am, I don't care what anyone else thinks, it became okay. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: not only okay, but it gave you this platform in your job and in life to actually succeed. So what you thought was an issue or a problem when you were five, 10, 15, 20 years old is now how you're actually thriving. Yep. And you could have very easily stayed in Manhattan and stayed in that place and, you know, had a totally different life Mm -hmm. but you're the one that chose that i'm not going to do this to myself today i do want to see tomorrow i need to remove myself from this situation and all the things that i thought were bad about myself are why people are drawn Mm -hmm. to me and that's why i was drawn to you um you're just so positive and accepting and and like this little ray of sunshine and 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 really fast legs on the bike. <laughs> um, but you posted something yesterday and I kinda wanna wrap it up with this. Yeah. Um, you went to the Imagine Festival. I did. And it was eating ED, mostly EDM. EDM yeah. Okay, so you know, usually you would think lots of drugs, lo- lots of alcohol, people just, you know, touchy feely all over everybody. And you posted something that basically the point is um when you became sober, you thought you'd never be able to go to this sort of event again yeah, because that's very much what it's surrounded by is the drugs and the alcohol but you you chose to go to it and enjoy what you love about it and not partake in the drugs and the alcohol yeah. so just tell me about that experience was this kind of your first big festival it since? was my
1: first festival ever really so i had been to a lot of like music performances uh-huh. i had done like dance on the pier and like all the things in new york yeah but I would never do a weekend festival because I couldn't smuggle in enough drugs to get mm. me through a weekend, <laughs> if we're just being honest. Fair. So I had never done like the festival experience right. with right. like multiple stages, that many people. And I, I love EDM music. If, you, uh, if you've taken my yeah, class, like yeah. we love to thrive. We love to Absolutely. kiki. We do all the things.
0: It's 30 second runs. Let's just Woo! go. 30 Let's Do
1: it i had the opportunity i got a wristband and was um there for a fitness activation Uh that um, i was a part of and then my plan was to like turn and run and a couple people were like do you want to just like go like check it out and i was like you know what like actually yeah like i'm here let's go like look at the venue and this was on saturday so hung out there until like 8 p.m and left um and I then was thinking about I was like, I would love to go back. Alan Walker, who's yeah. one of my favorites, yes. was playing. And then Marshmallow, mm-hmm. who's another one of my favorites. I was like, I would love to go back. But I had like created this story in my head that like sober people don't go to this. Like this is like not something like I should do. Like I shouldn't go to festivals. Right. And then as I was thinking about it, I was like, I got sober so that I could like enjoy things in life. Mm-hmm. I got sober so that I could like have experiences that brought a smile to my face and gave me a memory that i look back on and i smile about and you remember and i remember yeah that's the most important part yeah so why would i not experience this and so what i did is i had a friend come with me she was like my like partner i actually like felt pretty good going into it Mm -hmm. like sober even if i would have been alone but going into like a situation like that that i have no idea what i'm actually getting into i was like you know what i need It's safety in numbers. Absolutely. I need a support system. So I went and had like a couple energy drinks, got crazy. Um, (laughs) Why I decided it was smart to drink three monsters in one day, I have no idea. But it was hot outside and they were iced. And it's better
0: than the alternative. It's
1: better than the alternative. But I left with so much gratitude for the fact that I got to experience that sober. That's amazing. I left with so much like gratitude for the fact that I can actually like live the life I want to live and do it sober and still have a blast. Absolutely. Like, just because so many things have like drugs and alcoholics like, slapped on them doesn't mean we have to avoid them if it's something that we're going to truly enjoy.
0: And I love that because it's like you, you were controlling what you could control. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't want to miss out on, you know, this great event, but you knew that going into it, You weren't going to do the drugs. You weren't going to do the alcohol. And you had a friend. Mm -hmm. So taking, you know, I think a lot of times we get so overwhelmed, especially in circumstances like that that are very um, high energy or even when we're depressed, low energy. It's like we're so overwhelmed by everything going on or everything going wrong at the same time that we try to control everything. And then we feel like failures because nothing works versus, okay, I'm gonna focus on two or three things right now that I can control and being successful in those smaller areas. So that's one thing that I practice that it sounds like you kind of do the same. It's like, okay, don't look at everything so big picture and overwhelming because chances are you probably aren't gonna conquer everything this week. But like these two things, bringing a friend, and just staying sober for this one day to enjoy it is your way of taking control and actually living. Yep. So, cheers to you for doing that. That's incredible. Oh, Thanks. It was a blast.
1: I was like, Am I a festival person you now? You are. I think I'm a festival you really person are. now. You
0: really are. I love it.
1: It's pretty much soul cycle, just
0: without a bike.
1: Without a bike. Yeah. So, actually, I. Just come, forty five minutes. Forty five minutes. It's like a festival in a dark room. I love it. And everyone's sober.
0: That's right. Well, I really um I can't thank you enough for telling your story and I think you're an incredible human being and no one can tell you that. I think I see that you believe it. And I am proud of you and I'm proud to say that I'm friends with you and proud to be in the fitness community with you and teaching people that your physical being, it means nothing if your mental Mm -hmm. health isn't there. So just encouraging people to reach out. Um, For me, it is through fitness surrounding myself with that community and and being in a a dark room with loud music as one um, versus, you know, sitting on my couch, hanging out, out at home is where I get internal and in my head. So I think if we just keep talking about it and sharing and, and um, encouraging people to do the same, and if that means you know reaching out to you or me or, or somebody, maybe just um, let people know that it's okay to not have it all together. Exactly. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Feet Above. I'm your host, Megan Armstrong. Subscribe so you never miss another episode. And follow me on Instagram at Six Feet Above Podcast to keep the conversation going. Tune in next week for a brand new episode. This episode is a product of Audiographies, produced by Dinor Sapolia, edited by Jacob Smolian, and the music was by Keenan Willis. Funded by yours truly. I'll see you next time.